guys, and welcome to the first episode of Coffee and True Crime. I'm your host, Melissa. Hey, how are you? Um, since this is the first episode, I kind of wanted to give a little background on me and how I ended up loving true crime. So, like I said, my name is Melissa. I am in the lovely state of Louisiana. And how I got into true crime. So how I got into true crime is Criminal Minds. I know Criminal Minds isn't like a true crime area like forensic files and all that. But it's just how I got started. I watched an episode on Jack the Ripper. And I immediately got intrigued and wanted to know more and more and more. So that being said, I researched and I found a lovely group of people who love true crime. I thought I was a weird one. I thought I was the only one until I met some other people. So now I wanted to start a podcast because I really don't have many people to talk to about true crime. And if I talk to my husband, he gets like a little weird about it. But yeah, so I wanted to talk to people, get to know more people that love true crime just like me. Since this is my first episode, I wanted to keep it local into Louisiana. So I looked through a lot of serial killers in Louisiana, and one really hit me. Um, it is called the Axeman of New Orleans. So still to this day, we don't know who this person is. And yeah, so it's really unsolved and really kind of, really kind of weird in my opinion. So for around 18 months, um, from May 1918 to October 1919, New Orleans was in a panic about some guy who was coming to people's houses killing them with their own axe and it literally they were literally just in the panic for those full 18 months so i'm going to give you a background on the axeman so he usually used axe and when i say usually the first crime that i will tell you is why it says usually um in most cases he would chisel a panel out of the back door um, to get in the house. And then he mostly used people's axes in the residence. So whoever he was murdering or hurting, and I, why I say hurting is because he had six dead and then six injured. So, you know, we don't know if he meant to do these six injuries and he meant to kill them and they just miraculously, you know, survived. But yeah, so that's his little background on how he got into the houses and what he used. So his first victims were Joseph and Catherine. I'm gonna butcher this name so bad. Mago, Megio? Um, they were Italian grocers who were attacked on May 22nd of 1918. Um, they were both sleeping. Uh, they were, you know, probably just sleeping, thinking nothing was gonna happen. The X-Men broke into their house he proceeded to cut the couple's throat with a straight razor. So that's why I said earlier that it was usually an axe. This was, I think, the only time that he actually used something else besides an axe. Um, so after he cut their throats with a razor, he bashed their heads in with an axe. And Joseph survived the attack. But minutes later, after discovering from his brother, Jacob, no, Jake, I'm sorry, Jake and... Andrew, um, he unfortunately died. Um, Catherine was dead, 
I'm guessing instant with all of, um, with what happened, they said that her head was almost beheaded. So the police started doing the research. They found out that the razor was actually belonging to Andrew. Um, He was a, he worked at a barbershop. I'm guessing he was a barber or he owned it, one of the two. Um, And the police actually went to their barbershop and they talked to an employee. Um, The employee said that he actually removed the razor two days before the murders. Um, He really didn't explain why, but the police started looking more and more into him because both of the brothers were in adjoining apartments. So, you know, they started questioning him like, hey, you know, how did you not hear these murders? Like, you literally lived next door wall to wall and you didn't hear anything. And um, Andrew and his brother both started saying they went out of town. Um, They had a little bit to drink. They fell asleep. And he heard groaning noises after he kind of awoken. He was a little bit more sober. Um, And that's the reason why he said that he didn't hear the murders happening. Um, So, of course, you know, they looked, 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 looked into um, both of the brothers' alibis. Apparently, it checked out because they really couldn't um, accuse him of what happening. So, they let him, let him free. So, a little bit more, more than a month later, a couple was attacked early morning uh, of June 27th, 1918. Louis Vermeer and his mistress, Harriet Lowe. Louis was a grocer. They lived in the quarters at the back of the store. A gentleman was actually doing his daily routine. He was worked for a bakery. He was delivering stuff, and he's the one who actually found them. Of course, he called the police. He discovered them lying in a blood of pool. Um, Lewis was struck with an axe above his right temple, and Harriet was hacked over the left ear. They were both badly injured, but they they survived. Uh, The police started questioning people at the store. They had one suspect. He was a 41-year-old African-American. They started looking into him, and they arrested him for nothing, basically. Around that era, it was a lot of, like, you know, people blaming black people for everything. And they wanted to find someone to blame for this. And just so happens he started a week before the attacks. You know, it made a lot of sense to them at the time. They just threw him in jail. And, you know, after talking to him and hearing his story, they let him go. So you have to stop and think at that time. It was, it was just, now you think about it, it was wrong. It's like, don't just throw somebody because of their race. Like, you need to get to know their alibi before putting them in jail. But that's how it was back in the day. So... This crime actually made the news. It was so big. Um, On the headlines, it said scandal of the mistress. After Harriet was attacked, she actually had to have surgery um, because her face was partially paralyzed. So she had to fix that. Later, she was um, actually saying that Lewis attacked her. Um, And he was actually charged with the murders and served nine months in prison before they let him out on May 1st, 1919. Uh, Harriet did actually die two days later. 
And that's when she told the authorities that she suspected Lewis. Um, so, like I said, Lewis was released on May 1st, 1919. So, on August the 5th, there was a very similar attack made on Mrs. Edwards Shiner. She was eight months pregnant. Um, she was laying in bed. She awoke to see a very dark figure standing over her. And she was smashed repeatedly in the face with an axe. Shortly after midnight, she was actually discovered from her husband who was returning from work. Her scalp was open and her face was completely covered in blood. But she survived attacked. She, she survived the attack. Um, and she actually gave birth to a healthy baby girl two days later, which that is a strong woman. She got attacked by the axeman, and then two days later she gave birth and she survived. So props to her. Um, but by this time, the investigators began to publicly suspect that there was an attack of a serial killer. And they were connecting everything because, like, again, the acts that were found in all of these homes were theirs. And they were acts. And they were starting to puzzle things together. Um, so just five days later, actually, another grocer named Joseph Ramino was attacked on August the 10th. He was an elder. He lived with his two nieces. His two nieces woke up from the sound of their uncle wrestling with someone. The girls entered the room to find that he had a serious blow to the head. And they actually saw the axemen leave. Um, through all of his injuries, he was able to walk to the ambulance once it arrived. But he did. He did. I can't talk. He died two days later to um, the severe head. The girls were actually able to provide... A brief description of the killer. He was a dark-skinned, heavy-set man who wore a dark suit and a slouched hat. So, you know, the police started having clues more and more. Axe was the victims. The door panels were being chiseled out to gain entry. And most of the victims were actually Italian. So, when I started reading this, I kind of, like, noticed it. You know, Italian grocer, Italian grocer, Italian grocer. So, they started thinking of all of this stuff. They were starting putting clues together. So, once, of course, the storyline with Harriet, everyone just started into a panic. And there were multiple people claiming that they see the X-Men lurking in neighborhoods. They found um, chisels in their backyard, their doors and windows were appeared of uh, being tampered with. People started actually getting shotguns and taking turns watching their family over the night. And even people became saying that the Axeman was actually a woman. So it was just a lot of stuff the police were hearing and they didn't know if it was true, if it was not. I mean, it was all this stuff. So people were actually afraid of this axeman, which I mean, you know, who, who wouldn't be scared? So like I said, they were attacked. They were, they wanted to protect themselves. They were putting things on their doors. So it would be extra precaution if something happened. So over the months, um, the fear started to die down. 
neighborhoods returned to normal. They thought he was gone. They thought, you know, they probably caught him or he disappeared. Um, but on March 10th, everyone started freaking out again. The Axeman struck again. Um, he attacked Charles, Rose, and Mary. So Charles was the grocer who lived with his wife, Rosie, and they had their two-year-old daughter, Mary. They lived just across the Mississippi River from New Orleans when all of a sudden people started hearing screams. Rose had awakened to find her husband struggling with a very large man that had an axe. Uh, when her husband fell to the floor, the axeman turned on her and she held her daughter and begged for their lives. Um, unfortunately, the axeman slammed the axe down on both the mother and the daughter. When the neighborhood uh, arrived, Charles laid in a pool of blood on the floor as Rose stood in the doorway with a serious head wound. Clutching her, de um, her deceased daughter, the couple was rushed to the hospital, were both treated for skull fractures. Charles was released two days later while his wife remained in the care of the doctors. Um, obtaining, so after Rose gained full consciousness, she said that the attack was made by the neighborhood grocer, Laura, Lando Jordan and his 18 year old son, Frank. Um, Laura Lando was 69. He was in way like his health was way too poor to commit the crimes. Frank was too big to have fit through the panels in the back of the door. The pair were arrested. Um, Charles actually denied his wife's claim, saying that that was not true. These are not who, people who attacked us. And later, they would actually be charged with the murders and found guilty. Frank was sentenced to hang, and his father was in life in prison. After the trial, Charles divorced his wife. About a year later, Rose reversed her claim, saying that she falsely accused C2 out of jealousy and spite. With her claim being the only evidence between the Jordans, uh, with against the Jordans, they were released from jail shortly after. So on March 14th, the Times paper received a taunting letter, um, and it was from the Axemen. So it starts saying, hell, March 13th, 1919. They have never caught me, and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon. From the hottest of hell. I am what your Orleanans and your foolish police call the axemen. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know who they shall be, and I leave no clues except my bloody axe besmeared with blood and brains of who he and I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rail me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way that they have conducted their investigation in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only assume me, but his satanic, his satanic, I cannot talk today. I'm sorry, guys, majesty, but tell them beware. Let them not try to discover what I am for it was better. That way, we were never born then to incur the wrath of the axemen. I don't think there is any need of such of a warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me, as I have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all the harm. 
Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as the most horrible murder, which I am. But I could be much worse than what I want to be. If I wish I could pay a visit to your city every night at will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15 on the next Tuesday night, March 19, 1919, I'm going to pass over New Orleans in my infinity mercy, and I'm going to make a proposition for you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time. I have just mentioned if everyone has a band going, well, then just so is much better for you people. One thing is certain that is some of you people who don't who do not jazz it up on Tuesday, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I'm cold and crave the warmth of my native tartaries, and it is about time I leave your earthly home. I will cease my disclosure, hoping that thou will publish this. That in may go in with thee. I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever exists, either in the fact or realm of fantasy. The Axeman. Like, what? Jazz it up? Like, I feel like he thinks he's like the satanic version of Santa Claus. Like, I'm just going to go over your houses and listen to all the jazz. And like, a lot of people thought that this was actually fake. Which, I mean, a part of me thinks it's fake and a part of me doesn't think it's fake because, like, who, like, what is this? But, so, per the X-Men statement, everyone was listening to jazz on March 19th. If they weren't in, like, a jazz home or they were, like, listening to jazz on their music, whatever they had back then, Everyone was listening to jazz. And so no one was killed. No one was killed that night. So for several weeks, all were quiet, but people were still in fear. So on August 10th, 1919, another grocer named Steve Bowick was attacked in his bedroom when he was asleep. Bowick awoke during the night to find a dark figure looming over his bed. Suffering from the blood of the axe, he survived... Um, but really couldn't remember what was happening. He ran into the home of his neighbor, um, Frank Genuson. That's where he lost conscious and collapsed. He was then treated for his injuries, but was unable to remember the attack, like I said. Um, like others who had been assaulted by the Axemen, nothing was taken from the home. The panel in the back door was chiseled away. On September 2nd, a local druggist named William Carson escaped the Axeman when he fired several shots at him. Um, and then he left in a hurry, like, you know, being shot. Um, the Axeman, of course, left a broken door and an axe behind. On September 3rd, 1919, a young girl named Sarah was attacked with an axe while she was sleeping. When neighbors came to check on the young girl, um, who had lived alone. They discovered her lying unconscious on her bed, suffering from a very bad head injury is what they said from when I was researching. And she was actually missing several teeth. Though she suffered from a brain concussion, she recovered. And of course, the bloody axe was actually found in the lawn. So once again, New Orleans was in a panic. 
Um, they wouldn't hear anything for almost nearly two months, and the last attack was on October 27, 1919, when a grocer, Mike Pinatone, was slain. His wife heard the noise, came running, and she actually saw the axeman leave the scene, and he was actually murdered. He didn't survive the attack, and of course, what was left behind chiseled. You would imagine there's a lot of theories that go around with this case. One of them is the mafia called the Black Hand. Um, the reason why they thought this is because, you know, they were Italian-Americans. They were, you know, building a business. They were doing better for themselves and they were making money. And the actual Italians didn't like that. So that's one of the theories. And there is a second theory um, and it is Joseph Mumphrey. So Mumphrey was literally a blackmailing gang. He was a lead of it. He targeted um, Italian Americans. So in December 1920, a year after the accident had struck his last victim, Mike, uh, Mumphrey himself was actually shot to death by the widow of Petitone's wife. You know, the widow of, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Um, so she actually claimed that Mumphrey was the axeman and remembered seeing him running through the bedroom the night her husband was actually killed. Mumphrey actually served time in prison from 1912 to 1918 when the axeman's attacks actually stopped. Then they resumed the, the same time Mumphrey was a free man. So that is the story of the axeman of New Orleans. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. It's my first one. If y'all would love to give me any feedback of what I could do better, just let me know, and I can't wait for y'all to hear the second episode. So I hope y'all have a wonderful day. Be safe, crime junkies.